This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 17th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. How apt is the metaphor that speech should be protected in order to preserve the marketplace of ideas? At the Cato Institute's conference on the First Amendment, attorney Bob Bauer discussed what free speech means for many progressives in pursuit of a broadly agreeable path forward for defending a robust First Amendment. So let me begin by talking a little bit about progressivism, uh, how it's viewed, sort of for these purposes, how we might think about it, and where I think uh, some of the stereotypes could trip us up and could be confusing not just to critics of progressives, but maybe to progressives themselves. Let me broadly say that I look at progressivism, and I'm going to have to descend to a certain level of abstraction here, as differing from their colleagues and interlocutors on the right in their vision of the appropriate role of government in alleviating communal and human suffering and achieving a vision of social justice. That's not the only point of difference, but I want to focus on that for a moment. And I want to say to begin with, by way of flicking aside some common stereotypes, having that view is not incompatible with a concern about the size or efficiency of government, a skepticism about government or an understanding of the limits of government, It's not inconsistent with respect for federalism. Uh, Think about Yale Law Dean Heather Gerken, who's recently written quite a bit about uh, the importance to progressives of thinking about public policy resolution in federalist terms and the importance of devolving some responsibility for major public policy issues to the states and localities. And it's not inconsistent either with a a sensitivity toward the trade-offs between government intervention in our politics and the exercise of individual rights. In fact, the history of progressives in recent years has been one of meaningful conflicts within the progressive community about how to pursue that vision and at the same time respect First Amendment values. One example, John has written about this as one of the nation's authorities, is in the field of federal campaign finance. Some of the unanimity Uh, within the progressive community about the significance and the extent of controls on political spending and the associated potential infringements on First Amendment rights, uh, some of those views uh, began to really diverge within the progressive community in beginning in 2000, 2002, with the enactment of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act known as McCain-Feingold. And by the time uh, the litigation over that statute, with its controls on political party spending and other limits, came to the Supreme Court of the United States, the labor movement, which had been an ally of the Democratic Party in promoting campaign finance, split off on some issues presented for speech, for free speech, by McCain-Feingold. The view being that some of what was being done there uh, to prohibit corporations and unions from arguably getting around the campaign finance restrictions with sham issue advertising. You know, call representative so-and-so, tell him to stop voting to increase taxes on your neighbor, uh, that some of those restrictions had been so overdrawn they impeded the collective action to which the labor movement is committed and on which its success vitally depends. And even within the academic community, there are very meaningful splits within the progressive community about how to treat topics like, for example, hate speech. I have in mind a well-known... A debate and disagreement between my colleagues at uh, New York University, uh, Jeremy Waldron and the late Ronald Dworkin. Jeremy Waldron has written a book uh, attempting to defend reasonably far-reaching extensions, though carefully drawn extension uh, uh, limitations on hate speech. He has written that 
Those restrictions on hate speech, as we see this issue played out on campuses, are necessary to protect, and I quote, the basic dignitary order of society. Uh, to do so would be to, to not do so would be to, quote, directly or indirectly or deliberately seek to make it impossible for the targets of hate speech to live lives of basic dignity, to which Dworkin responded by saying, free speech is a condition of legitimate government. Law and policies are not legitimate unless they have been adopted through a democratic process. And a process is not democratic if a government has prevented anyone from expressing his convictions about what those laws and policies should be. So there's no uniform progressive view, and schisms have developed around some of these contemporary issues like campaign finance and the regulation of hate speech. But there is a standard view that has some truth to it, and that is consistent with the politics of progressivism. And that is one that focuses on power relations and the importance of looking at the effects of uh, the way we order our society, our politics, on who wins and who loses, who ends up on top, who on the bottom. And the view is that uh, some measures are necessary to address those in the society who have the distinct upper hand, who have massive resources, who have entrenched power relationships. And this is expressed, for example, in support to return to campaign finance for restrictions such as those on corporate spending. It is also uh, reflected in the arguments about hate speech to the extent uh, that the focus there is so sharply on speech that is aimed at marginalizing underrepresented or oppressed groups. So power relations tends to be the prism uh, through which uh, these issues are viewed in the progressive community. And in its most principled form, the worries about issues like campaign finance and hate speech definitely follow that broad concern linked to what I said was a vision of social justice with the way power relationships are structured, who's up, who's bottom, who, who's on the bottom, who has superior resources, who always has the upper hand. Now, in truth, you could say, if we were to invert this, uh, we would see uh, some of the characteristics of the standard critique of the right or some conservative forms of free speech uh, argumentation. There, uh, there is a suspicion of government that goes so far as to view it important to preserve uh, inequalities in the society and resources, like, for example, to make it possible for large, large companies, massive aggregations of wealth, to spend freely to promulgate their political views. You're going to find conservatives um, defending Citizens United on the whole in a way that uh, progressives obviously do not. And also, uh, I think related to this, is a suspicion of certain popular forms of expression, protests in the streets or elsewhere. And I think we see an example of this recently uh, in the conflict uh, that the President of the United States generated between himself and the National Football League. Uh, and there the argument was, uh, there's something going on here that's intolerable. Now we can have a discussion about what he meant and how he sees this and how others who may agree with him might see it differently but arrive at the same place that he does. But fundamentally, um, you will not find that same uh, duality, if you will, in progressive thinking where you're concerned about athletes taking the knee in the circumstances we saw in the NFL, but uh, fighting to the death for the right of large corporations to spend money to influence the political process. Uh, the emphasis is flipped uh, between the two camps. I was thinking, by the way, 
because it's useful to remember it when I uh, was reading about the NFL controversy, about the enormous controversy about another athlete long time ago and over his free speech rights that gripped the nation during the Vietnam War, and that was Muhammad Ali and his three-year hiatus from professional boxing when he declared himself unwilling to serve in the military uh, on the grounds that he had religious convictions that he sincerely held that prohibited it. Uh, he thought the war, uh, in the light of those religious beliefs, was immoral. He couldn't join it. He couldn't participate in it. And in the end, um, after a long struggle, uh, he succeeded in prevailing on his conscientious objector position and returned to boxing three and a half years um, after, uh, I think at the age of 28, um, after his boxing career came basically to a close because of the controversy over that position. And I just want to cite a couple of quotations uh, from uh, contemporary co commentators that shows how uh, frequently the view of speech follows our normative judgments about the content of speech and whether it's acceptable. Again, to echo John here, Sports Illustrated, of all magazines, said at the time, Muhammad Ali is, quote, just another demagogue and an apologist for his so-called religion and his views on Vietnam don't deserve rebuttal. And Mendel Rivers, a congressman, uh, then I believe a, a senior committee chair, and I think it's the Armed Services Committee, said at the time, we're going to do something uh, about getting him to that draft board, making sure the draft uh, does take Muhammad Ali, rather than leave him home to, quote, double talk. So the theory there was, you know, we got to keep, we got to shut him up. We don't want to hear what he has to say. So the basic view of the behavior of Muhammad Ali was driven in those cases, the view of his right to speech, by some fundamental disagreements with him about what he was saying about the war uh, and what he was saying about the legitimacy of popular protest in response to a government waging that war. So I want to quote Noah Rothman, who just published a piece on free speech in, the comment in commentary, who says this about conservatives in the same way that I'm sure conservatives would say it about progressives. He writes, moreover, the lesson of Trump's rise is that conservatives are not the high-minded stewards of enlightened free expression they pretend to be. They are as energized by the prospect of punishing their political adversaries as anyone, a claim that seems to me to be beyond debate. And I don't think anybody regards a, you know, commentary as a bastion of liberal thought. Um, so let's go now to the more constructive, I, I think, point, which is, where in light of this do we go to break through this kind of polarized thinking, to alleviate the pressure of opportunism on a flourishing uh, First Amendment theory and practice? For progressives, I think the first order of business is to rid themselves of a preoccupation and maybe have the debate expunged from it this constant reference to the marketplace of ideas. The First Amendment values are frequently said to rest on a vision of the marketplace of ideas in which truth battles with fiction and eventually all prospects of truth winning out uh, really depend on keeping that marketplace alive. The marketplace analysis, I think, is very misplaced. It's not a felicitous metaphor. It doesn't really describe uh, the role of speech, as I'm going to say in just a couple of minutes, in politics, and it inflames the views on the left about the role of money in politics because it suggests that in the marketplace of ideas, the largest share of the discussion is up for purchase. Moreover, I think it's fair to say we ought to be skeptical of the view that truth wins out over fiction as a regular, uh, truth wins out over error as a regular matter, as a predictable matter. Truth does not over win out over error. And our support for First Amendment values shouldn't be grounded in some expectation that truth will eventually um, went out over error. And in fact, which views are truthful and which are uh, erroneous 
which will prove to have whatever qualities we attribute to truth, may well be a judgment we can't reach in our own lifetime. And so the attempt to do so, I think, is, is frankly self-delusive. I think the question is, how do we think as free speech in the context of what we want in the way of a vibrant politics in our democratic polity? And that should be a concern to left and right alike. Because behind whatever we may charge them with in the way of opportunistic thinking or having their views of free speech shaped by normative judgments, at the end, each of them would subscribe to the proposition, progressives, conservatives of whatever stripe, uh, would subscribe to the opposition, proposition that in this country, we need to have breath and room to breathe for a vibrant politics. And the question is, how do we think about that? And I think of, by my reference to, for example, the marketplace of ideas, I think we oversimplify it. I think we have a tendency to break speech out and attribute to it a certain function that to a significant degree undervalues and, as I said, oversimplifies its role. I think the role of speech in the conduct of our vibrant politics, a vibrant politics, is quite complex. Hannah Arendt, in her book of The Promise of Politics, written many years ago, a caution that under the ancient Greek conception, speech and action were not easily divided. The process by which the actions by which we wind up influencing one another, forging what she calls new beginnings, is one in which speech and the actions that are taken alongside, with, in conjunction with, in support of speech, and action, are, they're intertwined. They're very, very closely associated and wrapped up with each other. And we cannot, I think, uh, be sure how speech isolated actually affects the conduct of political behavior. We know, for example, that speech has not only, First Amendment values have not only an expressive element, they have an associative element, and the right of association is central to the conduct of a vibrant politics. And when we try to break things down and treat speech in isolation from the overall conception that we have of how we conduct our politics, I think we are led considerably astray. We also have no way of knowing how particular arrangements for the limitations on speech in our politics will actually affect those politics. We try to predict them, as we have in campaign finance, and John has written an excellent book uh, showing the working out of unintended consequences, and our predictions are invariably inaccurate and sometimes wildly counterproductive. Uh, I like to tell, for example, some of my progressive colleagues that they tell me how much in the way of a limitation on their resources they would like to live with in spending to defeat Donald Trump. And I have so far heard uh, no bidders. Um, so I, I, wanna, I don't want to drag this out further except to give you um, an example from the Berkeley free speech movement of the 1960s. And those of you who are familiar with this, and I think everybody in this audience is, understands the revolt of students at Berkeley in the 1960s against various efforts on the part of university administrators to restrict student political speech to move it off campus. Um, uh, and this was a monumental struggle, as you know, that ended up with a lot of unrest and eventually the resignation of the chancellor of the university. And it's a long and complicated story. I won't go into it here. But it's generally viewed as an event on the left, right? This free speech movement was an event on the left. It was part of the tumultuous 1960s, the protest politics of the 1960s. But I want to tell you about someone named Mona Hutchin who on February 2nd, 1964, 
uh, showed up in San Francisco on a cable car. She was a member of an organization called the University Society of Individualists and of Cal Students for Goldwater. And she decided to stand on the a perch within the cable car that was traditionally reserved for male passengers. And she was wearing a button that claimed, I am a right-wing extremist. She insisted on the right to stand there, refused orders to move to a safer spot, and finally the police removed her. She wasn't arrested. That is, until later that year, when at Sproul Hall at Berkeley, uh, she was arrested uh, along with a number of people very much on the left who were part of the Free Speech Movement Steering Committee. Now, that tells me something. She's standing on a cable car. She's wearing a button. Which is the speech? Which is the action? This is her politics. Breaking out the speech component here, it seems to me, is uh, ultimately uh, very, very misleading. It doesn't get us to the heart of what Mona was trying to do. But we do know that when we think hard of what it was that speech meant in that context, which First Amendment values were implicated, not too long after, she was in a room of people who thought very differently about the underlying issues, but they were joined together in their view of the sanctity and significance of free speech. And so I question whether, in fact, the divide of the left and the right on this issue has to be forever sustained. Uh, I think there is a point of convergence. I am very troubled, obviously, about some of the views that are being expressed in our senior leadership, and I think it is a point on which left and right can agree. So thank you. Bob Bauer served as White House counsel under President Barack Obama. He spoke at the Cato Institute's conference on the First Amendment earlier this month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.